and pray, and we will get started. Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for bringing us all back here again to start a new school year. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity as I speak. Um, I pray that you would give us all open ears and open hearts to hear, Father. And Lord, I pray that this would be a helpful topic, that we would walk away with this with a better understanding of how and why we need to defend your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So tonight, like I said, we are talking, why do we do apologetics? Why is it important? First, though, what is apologetics? Can anyone tell me? Marcel students, you take a class called apologetics. Danny, what's apologetics? Okay, good. Defense of the Christian faith comes from the Greek apologomai. I think that's correct. My Greek might be a bit rusty. But yes, it means to defend your faith. It does not necessarily just mean Christianity if you're coming from a different faith background, but obviously in our case, we're talking Christianity. So to study apologetics or to present an apologetic is to present a defense for our faith. Why should we study apologetics? Let me ask you guys this. Even though some of you go to Christian schools, does everyone you encounter actually believe what it means to be a Christian? Okay, a couple of you say yes, most of you say no. Probably not. Even if you do live in a Christian bubble at church or at school, what happens when you go in the outside world? What happens when you go to the grocery store or go to the mall or go to the movie theater? Are you interacting with all Christian people? No, you're not. Has anyone in here ever had a discussion with someone about faith before who is maybe attacking your faith or questioning your faith? Okay, a few of you. That will happen more and more the older you get. Even when, if you go to a Christian college, there will be people there that do not believe in Christianity. As our culture gets further and further away from the traditions of Christianity that have come to pass, we're going to have to encounter these conversations more and more. We have to be prepared in order to present a defense. Because you will interact with people who don't believe what you believe. And there are stories of this. We're going to talk about four stories tonight. And how these people in these stories did not have a good defense for why they believed what they believed. The first story, we're going to look at Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are created. They're created to tend the garden. They're created to take care of the animals. They're created to take care of the land. In Genesis 3, Satan, disguised as a serpent, comes up to them. Does he just say, oh, you shouldn't follow God? No. No, he does not say that. Thank you. <laughs> does he just say, hey, guys, come to the dark side. We've got cookies. <laughs> if you've seen that meme. No, Satan does, doesn't say that. How does he attack their faith? He says, did God really say that you're not supposed to know good and evil? Did God really say don't eat from that tree? Are you sure? He attacks them deceptively. He attacks them at their base. He attacks them in a way that doesn't feel confrontational. Instead, it feels appealing. Adam and Eve both are like, oh, you know what? Actually, it would be cool to be like God. It would be cool to know everything. That's a great idea. What's the end result of this? 
The fall, thank you, Kelly. Yes, the end result of this is the fall. Humanity falls into sin. Adam and Eve did not have a good defense. They should have said, yes, Satan, God actually, or yes, serpent, God actually did say, don't eat it from the tree, and that's what we're going to do. Humanity would have looked a lot different if that had happened, but they didn't do that. They weren't prepared to give a defense for what they believed. They weren't prepared to give a defense for why they should follow God. There's another story. It takes place in the first century A.D., as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he's having dinner at a friend's house, and a lady comes and pours expensive perfume all over him. She's weeping, she's crying because he's forgiven her of all her many sins, and she doesn't feel worthy. And most people are taken aback by this. They're like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Who allowed this sinner to come in? How dare she touch Jesus? How dare she wipe her wipe his feet with her hair. Most people are taken aback. They don't really notice, or they're just like, here, we're not going to say anything. But one person says, man, that's an awful lot of money that just went down the toilet. Why did we do that? You could have just sold that expensive perfume for so much money to help the poor. Who knows? Who said this? Who knows? Taylor. Judas. Yeah, Judas Iscariot. The guy who would go on to betray Jesus. Was he actually thinking of the poor? No, the Bible tells us he was greedy. He would steal from the disciples' money bags to help himself. And after this event, he goes to see the Pharisees. And he's so mad that Jesus' kingdom isn't the political, powerful, rich kingdom that he thought he was going to get. That he says, hey, give me 30 pieces of silver and I'll betray Jesus. Judas wasn't able to give a defense for why he should believe what he should believe. Judas didn't really know what it was to follow Christ. He was along for the money. He was along because he thought that he would be given a special place in Jesus' kingdom, that he'd be this rich ruler somewhere. Think about it. If Judas hadn't done that, how would humanity have looked different? It's not just biblical stories, though, that illustrate this point. Some of you are probably familiar of a movie in which a rich billionaire decides that he's going to clone dinosaurs. <laughs> he creates this huge island, this huge theme park, keeps telling people he's spared no expense. This is going to be the greatest theme park the world has ever seen. And yet, he underpays his employees. He pays all this money into cloning these dinosaurs and making this amazing park but he doesn't value the people who actually run the park. So what happens? One of his employees sells him out. He goes behind his back. He starts working for a rival company, and he decides, I'm going to steal some of these clones. I'm going to sell them for millions of dollars. I'm going to get rich. To do that, he turns off all the fences just as a storm hits the island. Dinosaurs break out. Everything's terrible. The park is ruined. Again. He was not able to actually stay within the guidelines because of what someone had done to him. And our final story involves Turkish delight. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. In this story, there are four siblings who stumble upon a magic land 
They're supposed to be the four siblings who are going to free the land from the wicked witch who rules this land and bring it back to prosperity. The first one, the youngest, a little girl enters and she makes friends with one of the guys who lives there. And she's like, hey, I'm gonna bring my siblings back. This is great. Well, her older brother comes in and he doesn't stumble upon someone friendly and good. He stumbles upon the witch herself. And instead of being taken aback, even after he sees her treat the people who are taking care of her very poorly, what does he do? He sells out his siblings for sweets. He basically says, hey, you know what? I will give you everything. I'll bring my siblings to you. I'll betray my family if you give me rooms full of Turkish delight, full of food. This is, of course, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Edmund betrays his family because he does not stand for, he is not able to give a defense for the right thing or what he believes when he is presented with the temptation of sweets. So some of these are serious, some of these are a little goofy. How does this apply to us? Why does this matter to us? Well, Scripture tells us. We're going to look at four Scripture passages. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as the Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Notice, Peter here says a few things. One, we need to be able to give a defense. All of the passages we look at tonight, whether they're written by Peter, by Paul, by Jude, the brother of Jesus, they all were Christians writing to fellow Christians who were living in a world that did not value their beliefs, that attacked them, that hated them. So Peter here is saying, hey, you guys got to be ready. The people he was writing to, they would have known. The Romans around us, the Jewish leaders around us, they don't like our beliefs. If we don't have a defense or a reason for why we believe what we believe, we're not going to stay faithful. And notice here, too, we're going to touch on this in small groups, but Peter doesn't say, hey, scream every, at everyone your defense. He doesn't say, attack people who believe differently than you. What does he say? Do this with gentleness and respect. Again, as Christians, we're called to be set apart from the world. We're called to something different. People are supposed to notice us because of how we act in a good way, not because we act just like the world. Jude continues on this theme. In verse 3, he writes, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. He uses a very interesting word here, to contend for the faith. He's not just saying give a defense. He's saying be on attack. Be on guard. Fight for the faith. Again, he would agree with Peter. We're going to read more of Jude tonight as well. He would agree with Peter. We're not supposed to like go out and hold people to the sword and say, convert, become Christian, leave me alone. But Jude is saying, we have to be ready to attack false beliefs. We have to be ready to attack bad Christianity. 
We have to be ready to attack bad beliefs of the culture around us. I'm hoping, we've got more passages to look at, but I'm hoping you guys are already seeing, even though these letters were written 2,000 years ago, they apply to today too. A couple other passages. Titus, who was one of Paul's friends, another early church pastor, says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Again, he's talking about Christian leaders here, but it applies to all of us. We must be able to hold firm to that which we believe. Titus and Paul know that the world will easily tear our hearts away, just like Satan was able to tear Adam and Eve's heart away quickly from God. If we're not preparing for those attacks now, we are building our house upon the sand, to use one of Jesus' parables. We are looking at weakness, and we are not preparing for, the, for Satan's attack. And then finally, Paul says to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Again, notice Paul's advice here. He is not telling Timothy, go attack people. He's not telling Timothy, go scream out against your political leaders. Instead, he's saying, hey, treat everyone with gentleness and kindness. And notice why. It's not just to have a defense. It's also for the people you're debating with or talking with. Your hope is that through your how you present the gospel, how you present the defense of your faith, you will win them over to Christ. So to summarize what we've talked about so far, why do we need to have a defense of our faith? There's three reasons. One, so that we are sure of what we believe and can articulate it so that we are sure of what we believe and can articulate it. Secondly, to defend against the attacks of the devil. Obviously, Satan does not want us to be faithful and follow God. We need to have a defense ready so that we can counter those attacks. And third, we need to be able to evangelize to others by defending the gospel. If you've ever had one of these conversations, We'll talk more about this in the spring, but there are going to be some opportunities to have these conversations with people. We're going to help teach you guys how to evangelize. But if you've ever had one of these conversations, you know that if you go into it with the right attitude, with humbleness, with kindness, people might not agree with you. People might still be hostile towards you. But usually that diffuses a situation. If you're like Westboro Baptist, I know, terrible to call out another church, but holding up signs and pickets and saying, you're all going to hell, God hates you, God hates anyone who doesn't follow him, that might be, some of that might be accurate, but not completely. And it also is not a winsome way to win people to Christ. Are people, are you guys, more likely to follow what a teacher or parent has to say if they just yell at you and command you to do something? or if they ask you kindly and explain it. How many of you would rather be yelled at? 
Okay, Taylor. Yeah, most of you probably wouldn't. Most of you wouldn't. So again, we are called to be winsome in our defense so that we can bring people along with us. We can explain to them why we follow. So to sum this up, we need to be ready, willing, and able to stand by our faith in order that we can fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus' last command to us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have instructed you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can't teach people if we don't know what we believe. This whole semester, we're going to be talking about what do we believe as Christians, because we want to prepare you guys again, not just for these conversations as your high schoolers, but we want to prepare you guys to be followers of Christ for your entire lives. To do that, you need to be fully armed. You need to be ready to make a defense for your faith. I'm going to pray, and then we'll talk briefly about small groups, and then we'll break into them. Father, I thank you again for this evening. I pray, Lord, as we get ready to go to small groups, that you would bless the discussion, that you'd give us wisdom, um, that our discussions would be beneficial to one another and ultimately to our understanding of you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.